The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Hello again, and welcome to the ninth episode of The Window on the World. Today is Friday 6th of May, and in this podcast you will find out more about the latest updates on the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, the statements made by Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, the report on press freedom in the world by reporters without borders, and the proposal for further European integration by the Italian Prime Minister. And as usual, we will present to you the best editorials and opinion pieces on the Russian propaganda on the war in Ukraine and the acquisition of Twitter by Elon Musk. And now let's dive right into the most important news of the week. Today's first news is about the progress of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Mariupol is still one of the main theaters of the conflict. In the same city and from the nearby Azovstal steel plant, the evacuation of civilians is still ongoing. The English newspaper The Guardian reports a statement of the Russian defense minister who announced that from yesterday and for three days a daytime ceasefire will be in place to allow the evacuation of civilians. Let's stay on the topic of the conflict, but let's talk now about the statements made by the Russian foreign minister Sergei Lavrov. In an interview to an Italian TV program, Lavrov said that the Zelensky's government would approve laws that encourage Nazi theory and practice. Also, according to the minister, the fact that Zelensky is Jewish does not mean anything. Hitler also had Jewish blood. The wise Jewish people say that most ardent anti-Semites are usually Jews. The content of the interview went around the world, drawing criticism from many, particularly from the Israeli government, which demanded an official apology. Such lies are intended to accuse the Jews themselves of the most horrible crimes in history that have been committed against them, commented Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. But it's not only members of the Russian government who are spreading pro-Kremlin positions abroad. Last Sunday, news broke of the discovery of a group of trolls paid by the Russian government to influence in its favor comments and debates on social media. The group uses a decommissioned arms factory in St. Petersburg as its base of operations. Their goal is to manipulate public opinion through comments on the social accounts of public figures, media and even music bands. Among the targets are people such as Boris Johnson, Olaf Scholz and Joseph Borrell. But not only social media. Polls on support for sanctions against Russia would also be targeted and manipulated. This troll factory would be linked to Yevgeny Priozhin, a Russian oligarch close to Putin and founder of the internet research agency already accused in the past of manipulating the 2016 US elections. We will remain on the topic of digital technologies for a brief update regarding the Pegasus spyware of which we talked about last week. The phone of Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has also been infiltrated by Pegasus spyware. The use of Pegasus spyware was also one of the topics discussed at the European Parliament meeting earlier in the week. Let's change the subject completely now and talk about press freedom. This week, Reporters Without Borders released its annual report on press freedom across the world. The three countries with the highest press freedom index are Norway, Denmark and Sweden, 
While in place, 108 out of the 180 countries analyzed, we find the European country with the lowest index, Greece. Among the countries with the highest press freedom index, we also find Finland. This week, the northern European outlet, GLE, has begun to spread news in the Ukrainian language to support the refugees that Finland is preparing to receive. We'll stay in Europe, but let's talk about a different topic, the integration plan of the European banking system. Eurozone finance ministers have discussed a plan to integrate the European banking system via video conference. The draft plan circulated includes four new measures. The proposed measures focus on four aspects, crisis management, greater protection for depositors, harmonization of banking services and diversification of government participation in banking systems. The subject of further European inclusion was also the topic of the speech given by the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi to the European Parliament. The proposal made by Draghi touched on four points. Greater energy independence, optimization of military investments, loans to states at preferential rates and common debt, and the elimination of the principle of unanimity. Draghi also said that to make all of this possible, it is necessary to review the treaties, including the Dublin Treaty on the Reception of Migrants. Still on the subject of the EU, last week the head of the Frontex agency, Fabrice Legeri, resigned. I'm returning the mandate to the board because it seems that the mandate on which I was elected has been silently changed, Legeri said. For its part, the European Commission said the mandate has not been changed or modified. The resignation also comes after years of intense media investigation into his alleged role in violations related to pushbacks in Greece and elsewhere. Legeri, along with two other people, is also under investigation by the European Anti-Fraud Office for violations of the rights of people fleeing to the EU and other issues related to staff harassment. Frontex is a European agency responsible for controlling and managing the Union's external borders. With an annual budget of more than 750 million euros, Frontex is one of the European agencies that manages the largest amount of funds. And just Wednesday, MEPs refused to approve the agency's budget, demanding to see a report on alleged human rights violations against migrants. According to a media report, Frontex also failed to meet conditions set by MEPs. These included the hiring of 20 fundamental rights monitors, as well as the creation of a mechanism to report serious incidents at the EU's external borders and a functioning fundamental rights monitoring system. Let's stay in Europe and talk about a dispute between Germany and Italy. Germany has filed a lawsuit against Italy in the UN's highest court because Rome continues to allow victims of Nazi war crimes to seek compensation. Berlin disputes the decisions of the Italian courts as a previous ruling in 2012 established that such claims violated international law. According to the German state since 2012, there have been more than 25 new claims for compensation. In many of these cases, the courts have agreed with the accusers. In addition to satisfy claims of two such claims, Italian courts are seeking to seize real estate owned by the German state, some of which house cultural, archaeological, historical and educational institutions. The last update of the day is not about Europe, but about the United States. According to a draft majority opinion circulating these days, the US Supreme Court is reportedly preparing to overturn 
the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. The ruling in question guarantees the right to abortion in the country. If overturned, the issue of abortion would return to the hands of individual states with serious consequences on access to abortion, according to activists and NGOs. We now turn to the top editorials from around the world. The first few commentaries of the day analyze the relationship between the war in Ukraine and the Russian government propaganda. We'll start with the Italian newspaper La Repubblica for the first commentary of the day. Journalist Stefano Folli asks why Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov chose an Italian channel to be interviewed last Sunday. The interview raised a lot of criticism and accusations of racism, both in Italy and abroad. The motivation behind the Russian minister's choice of Italy can be deduced from Lavrov's own words. We expected a different attitude, Lavrov said. The unusual media pressure, not so much in favor of the invader Putin as against the Western alliance, the journalist explains, would reflect old anti-Western resentments in Italy. However, the Italian government is firmly on the side of its Western allies in the conflict, Folly continues. Although there is no way to put pressure on the government, the columnist concludes one must however note the opening of a gap if one looks at the polls, between the fears for the future of the Italians and the lack of compact majority supporting the government. Lavrov's declarations have not been ignored by the rest of the world. The minister's words are also the focus of an editorial published by the German newspaper Die Welt, Journalist Jacques Schosta begins by taking note of the minister's statements, which claims that Hitler also had Jewish roots and that the main anti-Semites were Jews. According to Schosta, Lavrov would have used the statement to argue that the Ukrainian head of state is also anti-Semitic, despite being Jewish. This thesis, the German journalist explains, would stem from the rumor that Hitler himself was the son of a Jew. If one follows Lavrov, the Jews themselves are to blame for anti-Semitism, is the conclusion of the columnist's reasoning. In the face of such words, Shasta wonders whether it is still possible to negotiate with such an interlocutor. Can reliable arguments be made with him? In conclusion, however, whether and how this discourse will take place can only be decided by Ukraine. For the last commentary on the subject, we go to France on the pages of the newspaper Le Monde. According to Florent Georgesco, the glorification of the role of the USSR during World War II is used by Vladimir Putin to justify the invasion of Ukraine. Russia justifies the invasion of Ukraine with the need to denazify it, writes Georgesco. This would be a direct reference to post-World War II Soviet propaganda, from which the trauma of war had been removed, the columnist explains. In doing so, the USSR's internal propaganda had left room only for a mythological version of victory against Nazism. From this manipulation of the real experience of the war, a progressive transformation of its memory resulted, Georgesco argues. Functional to Putin's findings, this is why in recent years he has intensified his oppression of those who question the official narrative. Nostalgia for this myth is therefore a driving force behind the invasion. In conclusion, the columnist notes that Putin has awakened the ghosts of the 20th century. We will have to relearn how to deal with them. The second series of today's opinion pieces are instead on a completely different topic. The acquisition by the billionaire Elon Musk of the social network Twitter. Let's start with Spain and the opinion of the editorial staff at ABC. 
with the purchase of Twitter, Musk is not only the richest man in the world, now he's also the most influential. Twitter is not the social network with the highest number of subscribers, but it is still a central platform in the public debate. This social network is a conduit for millions of messages per minute, often precisely on issues of public interest, the journalist writes. This centrality would have been sensed even by former President Donald Trump. According to many communication experts, Trump would have won the election in large part due to his aggressive campaign on Twitter. Because of its influence, Twitter is an example of an ideal tool for intoxication based on comments, based on facts that aren't always true and that generate hoaxes, also influencing traditional media. Elon Musk, therefore, has a difficult task ahead of him, that of not manipulating the social network in one sense or another, the editorial concludes. The next editorial comes from across the channel and was published in the British newspaper The Times. For journalist Hugo Rifkind, another problem also arises, that of privacy. Now that Musk owns Twitter, he will be able to access all Twitter users' data, including IP addresses and the content of direct messages. Now that he has access to everything, there's also the question of how he'll handle the use of the platform by dissidents. Living in regimes such as China and Saudi Arabia, countries where Musk has major business interests. Two decades into the internet age, we still don't really understand what online privacy means, the reporter argues. Is what we do on a screen an extension of one's private thoughts? Or is it equivalent to shouting in the streets, he wonders. In conclusion, Rifkin appreciates Musk's careless but sincere billionaire attitude. But on the other hand, it's the same reasons that disquiet him with his new ability to access what's shared on the internet. In the New York Times, journalist Amelia Tate tries to shed some light on the matter. On Monday, Musk tweeted that he wanted to unlock the tremendous potential of Twitter and promote free speech, Tate writes. But what exactly does free speech mean to him, asked the reporter. Tate then looks at Musk's past activities. Among the most noteworthy ones is surely the time Musk was charged with securities fraud by the US government's Securities and Exchange Commission, just because of one of his tweets. So perhaps Musk doesn't value freedom of speech, but speech free of meaning, Tate questions. The columnist then fears that plausible deniability, the defense that Musk usually resorts to when one of his tweets causes negative consequences, risks codifying this behavior into the foundations of the site. To conclude, though, these are all guesses and no one, perhaps not even Musk himself, can predict what the Twitter of the future will look like. And that brings us to the end of our ninth episode of the podcast, The Window on the World. Next week, we will continue to update you on European and international issues. Research and writing for this episode was done by Danielle Rutza. And behind the mic, it's me, your host, Gail Rago. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, take care and goodbye.